Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for being here. So, a few quick words before today's episode. I'll admit, I didn't know much about Gilles de Ray before picking up my guest's book. And I gotta say, reading it felt a lot like reading a fantasy novel, a horror novel. The accusations against de Ray are so outrageous his alleged crimes so completely disgusting, uh, horrifying, that I, I wasn't even really sure how to take it all in. I mean, if he did what he was accused of doing, he has to be one of the worst human beings to ever walk the face of the earth. No question. I mean, it's so bad that there's almost a disconnect, especially when you, you add in elements like alchemy, demons, magic. It, it felt like I was reading a a Game of Thrones novel at, at some points in the story, like, like fiction almost. And we barely scratch the surface of all of this today. We, we do touch on the crimes he's accused of, just enough for me to feel that I need to mention that listener discretion is advised. Some of this might disturb you, and don't listen if you think it will. Uh, but we hold back on some of the really graphic stuff. And there is a lot out there on Gilles de Ray. So if you feel curious about this, after you finish listening to the interview, please pursue it at your own uh, peril. <laughs> also, I, I do want to note that my guest is not convinced that Jill DeRay w- was guilty of, of all of the crimes he was accused of. She studied the subject extensively for decades, but she does have a different opinion than others out there, um, other historians, medievalists. Anyway, let's delve into the life and times of someone who, if the stories are true, and there is evidence that they're not all true, but if they are, he would very arguably be one of the worst serial killers in world history. On to the interview. I am very pleased to have Margot K. Juby with me today. She is the author of The Martyrdom of Gilles DeRay, a subject she has studied for many years. So great to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. 
Uh, thank you. Nice to meet you. Yes, nice to meet you too. So how were you first introduced to Gilles de Ray? How old were you? I think I was about 14, and I read about him in a, a book, about a, an occult book, because I was into the occult like uh, teenagers tend to be, and uh, I just read about him, and something about him sort of gripped me. And uh, when I discovered, there was a, a book came out about him the next year by Jean Benedetti, and I instantly went out and bought it because I was just, something about this business just interested me. But uh, I, I've never known what. It was just uh, something that uh, hit me somehow. And uh, I was also, at the time, this is probably important, I was also very interested in miscarriages of justice and everything in that area, capital punishment and everything. So it was on my uh, radar automatically. So, but I didn't believe when I when I started to read about him, I didn't believe that this was a miscarriage of justice. It didn't even occur to me because, as far as I know, as far as I knew then, history is history, and it's written down in a book, and every word of it is true. So I just didn't think that it was possible that there could have been any any jiggery pokery at all. And I I read the book all the way through, and I closed it, and I just sat there and thought. I don't believe that. You know, there's something about this this narrative that just stinks. And it was it was as instant as that, so you took a trip with your mother, right? To France. Both my parents, yeah. Yeah, to to Nantes. And uh I, what I wanted to do was find Gilles de Ray's tomb, which if I'd read a bit more about him, I would know that it was destroyed in the French Revolution and I was a bit late, but uh, I was just interested to see these places, and uh, I went to Champtocé and uh, where he was born, and uh, it was just—it was our very last holiday as a family, and uh, we'd never been abroad before. We only ever went to the Isle of Wight, and it was just fascinating, just to you know, just to be in the places where these things supposedly happened. Right. So let's start with his early life, if we could. Much of it, you write, is unknown. But tell us what you can about the family he was born into and his upbringing. The way he came into the world was uh, very interesting, actually, because he was um, there was a, a dispute over the um, estates of the Ray family. The last member of the Ray family didn't have an heir. She was called Jeanne Lassage, and she had to quickly find somebody to inherit these estates, sort of vaguely joined onto the family, because the Dukes of Brittany were trying to seize them from her. And what happened was there was a, a huge dispute about who was going to inherit these lands. And in the end, they compromised. Gilles de Ray's father <laughs> was, um, he was a Laval, and he married into the Cron family, his mother was a Cron, which is usually often people pronounce that as crayon, but it's not, it's Cron. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there was a, a marriage of convenience, right, that brought this son into the world and a brother a few years later. And he was actually born in order to save these estates, principally um, the uh, Champs de Say, those estates there. And he was actually 
because of all, all the disputes with the Dukes of Brittany, he actually died for them as well. So he actually died because the Dukes of Brittany wanted uh, those lands. And um, we don't know anything at all, really, about his upbringing, except that his father seems to have been a quite a, a nice man, a kind man, who brought him up with his um, Fred Elay, you know, the... Um, the son of the woman who breastfed him, which, of course, that was how it was done then. And, uh, you know, they were brought up together, so he did not have this um, lonely childhood that everybody says he had. And we know he just had the normal upbringing of a boy of his station at that time. You know, he would have learned Latin, he would have learned art, he would have learned military matters. And uh, that is really it really we don't know anything people make things up they say i've read people saying oh he, he killed one of the servants while he was uh, jousting or you know battling or something that's not even true that's just somebody made it up in a book so there's just nothing known about it really and uh, we all, all we know is that um his father died as a result of a, a hunting accident he was gored by a wild boar he died when Gilles was 11, and his mother appears to have predeceased his father because she's never mentioned again. I and mean, some people have conjectured that she remarried, but there's, there's no sign of it. I think it's likely that she died as a result of uh, the birth of her second son, who was born the year before. And uh, that is it. That is all we know. And he was supposed to be given into the care of a, a relative of his father. But his grandfather, Jean de Cron, managed to rig it so that he got care of both the children. And uh, there's been a lot of conjecture about him being an evil, you know, unpleasant person. But he wasn't particularly, he was typical of his period. He was a, he was a thug, you know, a warlord, and, uh, but he wasn't abnormal for that time. And I, th I think the only reason that... Uh, Gilles' father wanted him to be taken care of by somebody different was that he wanted uh, his children to be brought up in his own family and not his mother's family. I think that is the secret of that. And um, as far as we know, he was very good at um, all the uh, manly arts, you know, the uh, fighting and the hunting and what have you. And he actually went on to become one of the greatest military men in French history and he seems to have had his first initiation into battle in um, when he was about 16 and people try to deny this but uh, it does seem to have happened uh, in the in the Breton Wars of Succession and he was actually saved the Duke of Brittany Jean Saint who was um, later went on to plot against him so and that, that's really, I suppose, it for his childhood. And that he was also married quite young after he had three attempts at engagement and the first two fell through. And a lot of people say, well, this is where the Bluebeard thing comes from because his previous fiancés died. They didn't die. The first one went into a convent and outlived him. And the second one, we don't know what happened. It was just presumably the, that Jean de Cran found a, a richer heiress. There were no dead fiancés in his past. And he had to, he kidnapped, well, he and his grandfather kidnapped 
his uh, eventual wife, which, again, it was, wasn't particularly unusual. She was an heiress. And when her, her father died, I think in the Holy Land, I mean, the, the poor girl was literally besieged by suitors. And if Gilles de Ray and his grandfather hadn't abducted her, one of the others would. The idea was just to, you know, abduct the uh, woman, rape her, you know, spoil her market value, as it were, and just that was how it was done. It wasn't an unusual thing. It wasn't very nice. You look at it now and you think, well, that's pretty horrible. But uh, at that time, it was how you did it. It was, you know, a marriage market. So I do want to ask you about the blue beard connection later. Okay, yeah. So um, I get what you're saying. You know, you got to look at it in the context of the times, but it, it, it's still disturbing, the fact that he did this. And, and I know that there's a lot of discussion out there by mental health professionals regarding why rapists rape. And, and for many rapists, there, there is an element of, of sexual sadism involved. Yeah, that was, that is probably, I mean, the worst thing that you could say that he did, but uh, that was what um, you did. That was how you got a, a high-class wife. I mean, if he, if he had said, oh, I'm, I'm just going to sit here and gently court her, she would have been abducted by somebody else. It was just, I mean, you, ca you can't really judge somebody in, uh, you know, the, the 1400s by the standards we have now because, uh, I mean, nowadays that would, that would put you in prison, never mind anything else. But uh, back then it was the norm. The only things that he ever did were related to kidnapping, oddly enough. There are, I think, a couple of kidnappings in the in his later life, but they were men, and it wasn't particularly unusual. He abducted a former tutor of his, who was a priest, I think, and um, that got him into a bit of trouble. But it, the only reason he did it was that he felt that this tutor had uh, betrayed him by uh, going in with the people who were his enemies. There was also the, the famous incident of... St. Etienne de Mermont, where he abducted a priest who was supposedly saying mass at the time because he was taking care of a castle which was disputed property. But um, that, again, I mean, it was politics. People did that. But uh, there's nothing sadistic about it. It's just getting your own back. And there is a, an incident, in fact, in uh, French history where... Constable of France, Arthur de Richemont, abducted Jean de Malestroit, who was in the future was going to be Gilles de Ray's judge, because he had been suspected of allying with the English and trying to cut off supplies to the uh, French troops and this, that and the other. And he caused a lot of trouble. And de Richemont just seized him and flung him into prison. And um, I think he was jolly lucky to get out again because... Uh, Huh. I mean, that that was just the kind of thing they did back then. And this was the Constable of France. Nobody's ever said anything about him being a mass murderer or anything. It's just a, that was what you did. That was how, how things were. It just it, it just sounds weird to our ears, you know. Like he did what? And, but that was what they did. How did he meet Joan of Arc? And how did he become allied with her? What did he see in her? Well, he, he met her initially at court when she arrived at court. And, uh, and there's a lovely little story that's just totally invented by um, George Bernard Shaw. Because, you know, she, she came to court and the king hid himself 
because he said, well, if she's a, if she's some supernatural, you know, entity, she'll she'll recognise me, and she did. Right, she just knew him. It was, she, he um, was just hiding among the other, the other noblemen, just looking perfectly, I suppose, as drab as a fifteenth-century nobleman would look. And she just went straight up to him. But George Bernard Shaw invents the idea that Gilles de Ray pretended to be the king and you know sat on the throne. And, uh, and it's a lovely little story. It's not true, but uh, but that that anyway was how he met her. And uh, it's very odd, actually, that he was allied with the king in Joan of Arc because um, that was the losing side. At that time, nobody was allied with the Dauphin. Nobody nobody cared for him at all. The, uh, the English had occupied everything north of the Loire and the king was sort of squatting in a small impoverished court south of the river and just it's just odd that Gilles de Ray would side with him. So I think although he had um, both Breton and French blood in him, he very much felt that he was French. Because otherwise he would not have sided with the Dauphin. And I think he may have been, everybody says, you know, he, oh, he was in love with Joan of Arc and she was androgynous and this, that and the other. We don't know any of that. We just know that he was impressed by her. Well, everybody was impressed by her. There were a whole load of people who, who rallied her flag, who um, just found her hugely magnetic. And she must have been, really. I mean, she was... What she did was quite phenomenal. Finding her way across France to the French court and getting to see the king and having him fit her out with armour and send her off to fight at Orléans, that, that is an achievement, you know, whatever you think of her. So he was her right-hand man, right? Was he capable? What kind of actions did he perform? Was he able to advance her cause? Yes, he was. He was. Um, he was actually a second in command. And um, at the end of the uh, Loire campaign and Orleans, the king gave both of them the right to wear the fleur de lis on their coat of arms, which was absolutely unprecedented for an individual to have that. It was usually something that was given to a particularly loyal town or something. But those two were, were regarded as the primary commanders, and uh, they got this um, accolade that nobody else uh, had. And he, he did save her life a couple of times, and he was charged with protecting her in battle. And uh, some people say that that was her decision. You, you read about Joan of Arc, and people try to make out that she kept her distance from him, and she didn't care for him at all, and he barely had anything to do with her. And it's not true. They were very closely linked in battle. So where was DeRay when Joan of Arc was captured and then put to death? And how did it affect him, do you think? Well, when she was captured, she was actually fighting a kind of guerrilla war all of her own. The army had been broken up after the failure to um, capture Paris. And he would have been, I think, at his estates. I think his daughter was born around about that time. And um, he wouldn't have known what was going on. She was just going her own way. And eventually she was 
pulled off a horse at Compiègne and uh, captured by the Burgundians and sold to the English. But uh, he would not have known anything about that until after it had happened. He wouldn't even have known that this was going on. And when she was on trial, she was um, on trial at Rouen, and uh, he was on the other side of the river in a town called Louvier. Right, this whole area was in Normandy, which had been, which was under English occupation. Louvier had been liberated a few weeks before and was later taken back by the English. So he was not there just as some people say, oh, he went there to buy a horse. Well, no, he wouldn't go there to buy a horse. <laughs> he was in occupied territory. He was with Lahia, who was another one of the commanders. And they they had an army with them, and they were overlooking Rouen, where Joan was on trial. And um, everybody supposes that there was a, a rescue planned. And I think the English knew that something was going on because they said if anybody tried to rescue her, they would sew her into a sack and throw her into the river. So obviously the, the rescue did not succeed. Although I mean, there were rumours years later that she had survived, but that is uh, obviously not provable. I don't think she did. But uh, anyway, that was that was what happened. He did, I'm absolutely certain, try and save her. So he becomes a marshal of France, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, when the king was crowned. He was made a marshal of France. They they did need, I think, for the coronation. I think they needed four marshals, and they didn't have enough. And people say, "Oh, well, they just did that to make up the numbers." It's pathetic, really, that people try and say that he's he didn't deserve it. He wasn't worthy of this honor. He was the he was one of the knights who went to collect the holy chrism and take it to the cathedral. So, I mean, that was a great honor. And some people say that he did it by himself, but uh, most people say there were four knights who had to carry this holy anointing oil to the cathedral. So, so DeRay becomes one of the, the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, person in France. Mm, pretty much, yeah. And he decides at the height of his wealth and power to become a man of leisure, right? I don't. I wouldn't say that exactly. It's because he doesn't seem to actually. There's this um, narrative that says he retired to the states and had nothing more to do with politics or war. But uh, he didn't have any much choice about the war business because the war had gone down to a negotiating stage and there wasn't much going on. There were a few little skirmishes, but uh, he didn't have much choice about that. But there is also the weird episode where he takes up the cause of this woman who is claiming to be Joan of Arc, who either survived being burned or was, you know, rose from the dead. I think it's more that she survived. But uh, he takes this woman on and presents her as Joan of Arc come back from the grave. And um, he is, obviously, there is some kind of political needling going on there. And eventually he drops her. I don't know if he ever actually believed that she was Joan. He may have, or he may just have been uh, using this woman for whatever political purposes he had in mind. But so I don't think he retired 
as such. He is, and he, he always had an army as well. He had an army of two hundred men, which is um, which I I don't. I mean, I, he would have had that anyway, I think. But um, I don't think he had entirely given up on having to go back if necessary. I don't think he actually said, "Right, that's it. I'm hanging up my sword." There was a, there were a lot of little episodes which you can't entirely track down because they're not recorded properly where he was wandering about the country with uh, one of his cousins and there were these little skirmishes going on here and there and uh, but you can't really pin them down he was he was not entirely you know retired from warfare one of the common circulating stories about him is that his interest in the occult first began when he borrowed a book from an imprisoned knight, correct? Yeah, that's a very odd story. But uh, Yeah, but they can't actually date this. This is the problem. They don't really know when it happened. And it's a, a very odd little story because why, why is a Marshal of France visiting a, a knight who is imprisoned for heresy? Why would he be visiting him in prison? It's just odd. And how does this guy get to keep this obviously heretical book with him. It's an odd story. I mean, it, it may have happened, but uh, it leaves a lot of questions. And um, the idea that uh, Gilles de Ray retreated with this book and read it quite privately in his private quarters is nonsense because he said that he read it publicly. He actually read it aloud to people. So he didn't think that this book was heretical, although it probably was by the standards of the day, because uh, it mentioned demons. So if it mentioned demons, then that was heresy. So. We will be back after these brief messages. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story.
and we have returned. How does he spend his money? And how does his uh, wanton disregard for his finances affect his extended family? I think I, I think the um, expenditure business is is a bit a bit exaggerated. It's not much exaggerated, but uh, at that time, that was what noblemen were supposed to do. They were supposed to splash the cash around and impress the hoi polloi, you know. But uh, I mean, there are there are other people at that time who do exactly the same thing, you know, lords, and that is a thing that you can do. But, uh, he was a bit exceptional in his extravagance he did not um i don't think he kept very good accounts put it this way because um, he was when he owned these properties they were making money particularly the ones on the on the river loire because they he could tax the boatmen on the loire as they went past the castle but he spent faster than the money was coming in and then he would kind of sell off the rights to the taxes to other people, thus cutting off his own income. And uh, I don't think he was very financially aware, but there is no way to prove that because there are these um, accounts of all the um, estates, right, called cartulaire, and the pages that deal with Gilles de Ray's time have been removed, so we don't know exactly what his finances were. They have been, you know, that has been concealed from us at some later date. We don't know when. He did spend a lot of money on a recreation of the Siege of Orléans, a big play actually in Orléans that went on for a long time. There were a lot of uh, actors involved and it was absolutely huge. And that would have meant a lot of money was spent. But oddly enough, when the king was talking about this years later, he did not blame Gilles de Ray's problems with money on his theatrical escapades. He blamed it on poor servants, bad management of remote estates, things like that. And I think alchemy, but not the theatre, because that was quite... Um, it wasn't... Uh, that unusual for a, a nobleman to be involved in the arts. But um, the, the main problem with his theatricals is that it was the Siege of Orléans and he, Joan of Arc had been burned as a heretic and he was effectively saying that she was a great person and I think the implication is saintly. And that was just not something he did. He was just he was standing up in public and saying, This heretic is a saint. And I think that was actually where he started to fall from grace because I mean a heretic didn't wasn't even allowed to be defended in court by a lawyer because um, you know, if the lawyer said, you know, oh this guy is a fine guy, the lawyer would also be a heretic. So they weren't allowed to do that. And you certainly weren't allowed to make plays about them and say that they um, were sitting at the right hand of God or something. So I, th I don't think people take that seriously enough. They just don't seem to just pass that by, but they don't understand the, um, the values of the time, which was that heresy was worse than anything. And when he's in court, heresy is the worst thing. It's worse than murder, literally worse than murder. Right. So tell us about his chapel 
of the holy innocence. What was its purpose for him? Well, the first thing to say about that is that everybody thinks that he actually built a chapel, a physical chapel, right? Built a little building and, uh, you know, put pews in it and what have you. But uh, it's not a physical thing. It is just, it is an organization, basically. It's a mobile, kind of mobile church. It goes with him wherever he goes. So, you know, it is an organization. It's like not a physical building. And um, he took that very seriously. He wanted his um, clergymen to be bishops. He wanted them to wear mitres. And the Pope said, no, you do not do that. And um, he just ignored the Pope and said, right, they're going to do that anyway. And one of the things, actually, that people don't ever say about Gilles de Ray was that he was a canon in the church. Not the Holy Innocents, but in the Poitiers, I believe it was. He was actually a canon. So he was an ecclesiastical official. Uh, there are many who believe that his chapel was a, a front for nefarious activities. What do people say he used it for, and what do you think about those beliefs? Well, the thing is about that is it, it was called the Holy Innocence, and everybody says, oh my God, he is making a deliberate allusion to these um, innocents that he's killing by referring to that. But he wasn't at all, because that, the Holy Innocents, who were the, the little babies killed by Herod, allegedly, they were very common dedicatees of chapels at that time. There's one in Paris on the Seine. And there's no evidence whatsoever that he was thinking about murdering children. It was just a common thing to call these, name your chapel after the Holy Innocents, because um, there was a war on, people were being killed, and um, that, that was just the fashion, you know, to refer to these innocent children being killed. And it's not, not at all odd for the time. I, it's just hindsight, you know, you look back and you say, oh my God, he did that. But people do do think that, uh, and they say things like, "Oh, he designed all the robes and everything," and uh, that's there's no evidence for that either. So much of what you read about Gilles de Ray is people make something up to make for a nice dramatic story, and then other people come along and copy it, and eventually that that's the truth, you know. And you, if you say it's not the truth, uh, they think you're making stuff up. So there are three elements to this, right? Three kinds of accusations that are eventually hurled at Gilles de Ray. Yeah. One involves his alleged participation in the occult. Yeah. One involves uh, pedophilia, and one involves murder. Yeah. I mean, the magical stuff, which you could bundle in heresy, that was the worst for them. Uh, the next after that, they're not particularly, they don't think in terms of pedophilia. They think in terms of sodomy. And sodomy at that time was just pretty much anything that was not open to procreation. There's nothing specific about it. It's just a general, you have your man and your wife in the missionary position. You don't have any kind of um, contraception. You don't have any kind of withdrawal, right? That, that is okay. Everything else, no, right? And that was allied to heresy because it was supposed to be, you know, because you were going against God, you know? So the, the sodomy and the heresy are all bound up together. So this is how the story goes, right? 
Gilles de Ray uh, embraced black magic for financial gain. Um, he wanted alchemists, magicians brought in that could make him gold, in essence. Yeah, the Philosopher's Stone and uh, that stuff. Uh, the thing about that is that uh, alchemy wasn't illegal at that time. You could, it was a kind of intellectual pursuit that uh, was quite acceptable for a nobleman to dabble in alchemy, but you were not allowed to try to create gold. That was absolutely, they called that alchemy, and it was illegal. It was, they regarded it as forgery. They didn't think it was, you could do it, but it was, if you were doing that, you were a forger, right? So, the first, he has um, several confessions. The first one that nobody talks about, he says um, that that is the only thing he feels guilty about, is the only thing he thought was a crime was trying to create gold. And, and how does he go about doing all of this? Uh, who does he hire? Who does he bring into his circle? What steps do they take to make this happen? He has um, several magicians who come into his castle and try and do this. There's, there's one particular guy. The, the guy has a silver coin they give him. And he locks himself up and says, I'm going to turn this silver coin into gold. Well, what he actually did, they were in an inn, what he did was turn this silver coin into wine. He didn't, wasn't terribly successful because he just drank it all away. But, uh, that's, uh, that, man, that's quite the funniest one that happens. There's also another guy who's, um, who goes out into the woods and tries to summon the devil and he sees a, a leopard that doesn't speak to him. And I thought, well, leopards don't usually speak to him anyway. But, uh, and then there's this, all the Gilles de Ray's men are standing outside this wood listening and then there's a fantastic noise of uh, a clamour, which somebody says is the, is the magician beating his armour, you know, just to make a racket. And then he comes out and says the devil attacked him and, uh, and then, he needs, then he needs more money to go off and get something he needs and then we don't see him again. So there's all kinds of these people who turn up in his lives and uh, basically fleece him and... Uh, and then disappear again. The one that people are interested in is Francesco Prelati, who is an Italian. He was supposedly tell he was supposedly the person who told Gilles to sacrifice body parts to the devil. But uh, there is only one one instance of anybody uh, offering body parts to the devil. By the way, it's just uh, it's not something that was going on all the time. It was just something that happened according to some of the people who gave evidence but uh, the thing about that though is that it, people say oh Prelati corrupted him and uh, taught him how to sacrifice to the devil and everything uh, Prelati only came into his life in I think about um, just over a year before he's arrested he turned up in May and uh, the next year Gilles is arrested in September so so he, you cannot blame Prelati, whatever he was, whether he was a magician or some kind of shyster, you can't blame him for any of this because um, he just wasn't there. And the dates of all these uh, alleged murders are very odd as well because uh, he is originally charged with committing murders every hour, every day for 14 years. Now, if you go back 14 years from when he's arrested, this is, before he met Joan of Arc, right? I mean, the, 
and later the date is changed in the trial to say it was the year his uh, grandfather died. That is to say just after Joan of Arc died as well. So you've actually got this period of time before Joan of Arc died when he is allegedly, and with uh, there, are, there are depositions to, to will attest to this, he was apparently committing these crimes before he met her and therefore the people who are very much in favour of Joan of Arc do not like that at all, but um, it's all very vague and and obviously the the trial record has been altered at various times in history but uh... yeah I, I do want to talk more about that but to, to go back for a moment to this dalliance he had with the occult and many people think that it was much more than a dalliance and one of the things he did and it's a story that's often told is that he summoned a demon yeah a demon mm. named Baron, what was supposed to have happened between DeRay and Baron? In, in, in what form did the demon present itself and, and what were their interactions? Well, Baron is quite odd because if you read all these books on demonology, he uh, doesn't exist. He was um, Proati's own little private demon who, according to him, was a, a very handsome young man who was, I think he wore a violet cloak and was... Generally, if you assume Gilles de Ray was gay, which he may have been or he may not, but if he was, then that would be calculated to appeal to him. But Gilles de Ray never sees Baron. Even if Baron is actually in the room, he doesn't see him. Only Prolati sees Baron. So um, I think he, uh, at this point, either you have to say, well, Prolati is, has got the sight and he can see demons and Gilles de Ray can't, or you have to say this was a bit of a, a, bit of a joke. But, uh, there is never, I mean, you, you read about Gilles de Ray making a pact with the devil. He never does. He writes pacts, he signs pacts, and he sends them off to be given over to the devil. And the devil never turns up to pick up the pact. So he is not in league with the devil because he, he can't make this pact. <laughs> At uh, one point, right, there was a, a winged serpent. Oh, yes. Yes, the winged serpent, yes. There are two versions of this story. And one version is um, Gilles de Ray's version. Now, if you read the trial record, Gilles de Ray's evidence is really flat and dull. Right? Everybody else has these wonderful stories, but he doesn't. His, his stories are always really flat. So Prelati claims that... Uh, the devil has filled a room full of gold. And obviously, obviously, he should not have told Gilles de Ray this unless he actually wanted him to ruin things because he said, he, you're not allowed to go and look at that gold. So, But he, obviously, he's going to know that Gilles de Ray, the first thing he says is, I want to go and look at the gold, right? But it's protected by a, a fierce serpent with wings, right? Of course, Gilles de Ray goes and gets his... Um, piece of the holy cross and um he goes to have a look at this gold which um isn't there but it's protected you know the room is protected by this winged serpent and uh, only prelati sees a winged serpent and when that when they finally do get into the room there's no gold at all obviously it's turned to dust but uh you know gilles doesn't see anything right? there's just a 
he just says there is a serpent in his version but it, it doesn't have wings it's it's quite small serpent and uh, yeah it's just, it's just his version is just very flat i definitely want to ask you about his confession and how it compares to the confessions of others who were close to him but the allegations of child sacrifice there were some parents who believed at the time that their sons had possibly been snatched up by DeRay and his accomplices, lured into his castle with promises of jobs as pages, uh, outfitted with expensive clothes, fed expensive food and drink, before being forced to participate in heinous, terrible acts. Th those were the allegations, right, that the parents of these children made. Mm, yeah. It's all very exaggerated because um, if you if you go through the um, the records, this just isn't happening, right? There is a, there are some set piece stories where somebody says, "Oh, my son went there and he vanished," right? But there are very few of them. Most of the stories are just oh, there was I used to see this these kids wandering around the fairgrounds and I and I haven't seen them for a long time or. I saw this guy in Mashkul who'd lost his son and who was calling for him, but those are just anecdotes. And um, the, the stories where somebody goes into Gilderay's household and vanishes, they are always riddled with contradictions. I mean, there's this one particular boy, right? I have never understood why they had to make up a story about how he went into the household, how he was lured into the household, because he worked there. He worked with Lady DeRose Taylor. But they make up all these various versions of why, when he disappeared. And in one version, he is scrumping apples, right? But the thing is that this happens, the very latest this can have happened is in June when there aren't any apples, you know. You can't go nicking apples from the orchard in June because... The blossom has only just gone, so it's just very strange stories, and they don't always make sense. And, uh, but there's very few, very few stories that act you can actually say, yes, this happened, and somebody in DeRay's household was the last person to see this child alive and took them away. Very few. And when, when they – there is – as far as I know – as far as I recall, there is not even one instance where Gilles de Ray is actually abducting children or is the last person to see a child alive. It never happens. And then people say, well, well he, sent, he sent people out to get them for him. I mean, why would he? Well, if, you, if you are looking for beautiful children, you want to choose your own. What, what were the accusations? Am I allowed to say this? <laughs> um, it was very, very, very lurid allegations to do with uh, basically he gives them a nice meal if he gives them wine he takes them into a private room and then he attacks them and uh, the nature of the attack isn't absolutely plain because they change what actually happens in the uh, ecclesiastical trial he does one thing and in the civil trial he does something else that's slightly different but basically he is supposed to be masturbating on them and um, killing them in various ways 
like beating them to death, cutting their throats, and this, that, and the other, slitting open their stomachs to look at their entrails, and pretty much um, anything you can think of. But uh, oh yes, and hanging them as well, hanging them till they're almost dead, and then taking them down again, and saying it was just a game. I mean, it's unspeakably horrific. I mean, it's almost beyond comprehension, if true. It is, yeah, yes, if it's true. I mean, it would be absolutely horrific. But uh, I keep seeing people saying, well, he behaved like a typical serial killer. And I don't see that because, I mean, serial killers, on the whole, there, there are a few exceptions. But I can't think of very many killers who have actually treated murder as a spectator sport. I mean, this is not just maybe, you know, a folie à deux where, you know, two people get into some kind of weird rituals. This is several people. This is this is two of his cousins. There are two body servants. They are all there, right, watching or, or actually doing the murders. And um, that, to me, is not what serial killers do nowadays. It's not typical by any means, you know. I'm not saying that uh, it couldn't happen, but I am saying that um, you can't say, well, that's what serial killers do, because they don't. I'm just casting around in my mind to think of anybody who's who's been, where there has been more than two serial killers engaged in murder simultaneously. I'm certain there must be a couple, but it's not common. The details are are really graphic in the book, um, and we don't need to get too far into it. Um, I, I no, think we, we don't all get the idea. <laughs> no, I don't think we should. <laughs> One more break. We will return after these brief messages. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's The Audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. 
But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back for the final time. So many of these accounts come from both him and the people around him. How does this drama come to a head? How is he arrested? Well, according to the, you know, the official version of it, he offends against the church and also against the Duke of Brittany by having a bit of a, an argy-bargy, as it were, St. Etienne de Mermont, where he is saying that his, this castle, which he has sold to a representative of the Duke of Brittany, that is to say, you know, a straw, a straw man, because it's actually the Duke of Brittany who is um, buying these castles and using um, some of his men to, to cover it up, because he's not allowed to buy estates from his vassals. So Gilles disputes this... Um, sale for reasons that nobody really knows you don't it's very much hidden in mystery he just for no reason charges into the church with a few men and um, tells the priest who is actually the brother of the guy who bought the place and who is actually just looking after the castle so so he was a bit unfortunate there he just basically tells him to get out of the castle he doesn't touch him nobody touches him right Everybody says, oh, he's dragged out of the church. He's not dragged out of the church. He is just told to basically to get out of it or he's going to be killed dead, which is uh, not quite the same as being dragged out. But uh, anyway, he imprisons this guy. There is a huge brouhaha about it because you don't do that. You do not go into a church and, uh, you know, abduct the priest. There's a huge fuss about that. And at that time, we are told that um, Jean de Malestrat, the Bishop of Nantes, who is also, by the way, the Chancellor of Brittany, and Brittany is broke at the time, so remember that. But he starts an investigation into Gilles' conduct, and according to him, all these people turned up, his parents, and said, oh, he's been abducting our children and killing them, which is the form of words they use, that that he has been taking these children and murdering them, which... uh, if these children have been indeed been abducted, then that's one thing, but they don't know what has happened to them. Um, so it's a clear case of these pe- people have been confronted with uh, an accusation and they have just rubber-stamped it, you know. Gilderay is doing this, which they don't have any way of knowing. That's what he's doing. I mean, even if the children are vanishing, they don't know why they're vanishing. They just know that they are. So... Anyway, that is how the um, accusations against him started up. And he is then, there is a, all these um, letters are exchanging hands that she does, he doesn't know anything about. 
and eventually he is arrested on uh, September the 15th of 1440. He doesn't resist arrest. He is obviously, he does not feel he has done anything particularly to worry about. He just gives himself up to the men who come to arrest him. And two weeks before his arrest, he has actually been, his properties have been confiscated by the Duke. Right, this is before he is arrested. So that, I think, is a, a big red flag there. I think it was Solomon Reinach who said, if, if you give away the bear skin before the bear hunt, you are, it is obvious that you intend to kill the bear. You know? So they have, they have decided at that point that they are going to do away with Gilles de Ray. He's not going to go to court and be found innocent. So he's arrested and uh, you know, taken to Nantes, which is the capital of Brittany. And then the trial starts. Uh, it's very important, actually, to point out that this takes place in Brittany. It is a Breton court. It isn't a French court. So what you've got there is a French hero, the primary French hero of the Loire campaign and the siege of Orléans, who is on trial in basically a, a foreign country because Brittany is semi-independent from France. And halfway through his trial, the Duke of Brittany signs a pact, you know, a treaty with England. I mean, he's basically in a in a, a hostile environment. He's not on trial in France. The king has absolutely nothing to do with it. Right, yeah. There are also accusations from family members. His younger brother, for instance, was apparently displeased with how he had spent away the family fortune. Yeah, the uh, the family were not at all keen about his extravagance. They they tried to get the pope to act against him. They did actually get the pope to, you know, not recognize the chapel of the holy innocence, but uh, they got the king to issue a, a little ban on anybody doing business with um, Gilles de Ray. They were not, nobody was allowed to do business with him, to buy any of his estates or anything that was banned. But uh, the thing is that uh, the Duke of Brittany refused to accept that that applied in Brittany. He said, oh, well, that, that's France, you know. And it all came down to, um, there was the relationship between France and Brittany was very, very odd. And he said that uh, he didn't have to do that. It was just very, very political. So, therefore, he could buy estates from Gilles de Ray using, you know, straw men. And he was allowed to do that. And it also meant that Gilles could only sell estates in Brittany, pretty much to people who uh, the Duke of Brittany had uh, approved of. At what point does he confess? Is it uh, before the trial, during the trial? And what happens as a result of his confession? Well, at the beginning of the trial, he is absolutely fine. He is polite. He, is, um, he wants to get it sorted out. He doesn't think that he has um, done anything heretical or particularly wrong. He doesn't 
As far as anybody can make out, I don't think he knows all the charges against him. I think he imagines that they're trying to sort out the uh, kidnapping of the priest and all that, right? Because he has been, he's had a hefty fine that he can't pay for that. And he thinks that uh, it's all about not paying the fine. And he doesn't know he is charged with heresy and murder. And at the point when he finds that out, right, when they read the, uh, you know, the accusations, he is absolutely livid and he defies the court and he describes them as simoniacs and uh, which is somebody who takes a, a clerical post for money, you know. But uh, he is, he defies the court, he refuses to take the oath and um, that is what, what people remember most about him, that, that how he defied the court and then suddenly he has a complete volta face and says um, he accepts the, the court. And I think you can only assume that uh, at some point there has been torture. There is a, a convenient gap during the trial where the court has said, right, you are not, you are not confessing adequately. You know, you, you, you've got to be tortured and we will do that. Now, basically, this afternoon, we're going to talk to you. And he says, no, don't do it now. Um, give me time to think about it, and um, I'll see if I can satisfy the court with a confession. And um, he does, actually, confess. But the court has not said, oh, if you do that, you won't be tortured. What they have said is, if you make a confession, we will put off the torture till the next day. And the next day... The court, instead of starting, you know, sitting in the morning, which it has been doing, sits in the evening, which uh, to me that is fairly obvious. They have said they're going to torture him. They said they're going to do it tomorrow, and then there's a lengthy gap where the torture could have taken place. And then he is brought into open court and makes a public confession because the previous one has been in his, his rooms. I would say that she, that he was certainly tortured, but I think about two and a half years later, the king actually actually says that he suffered that Gilles de Rey was wrongly executed and that he um, suffered outrages while he was in prison, which I think is as plain as daylight that he means that he was certainly badly treated and probably tortured. And does his account of of what happened match pretty well with what his servants? had claimed it does and it doesn't he he basically sticks to the um the account that has been given by his two um servants who we are people i mean most people now think they were tortured because their accounts are very 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 similar at least in the ecclesiastical court and um his follows theirs almost exactly but um it's lukewarm, you know, it's, it's, it's like, um, you know, if you were to take an account of something and then, then write it down but, but lose all the feeling in it, you know, and not and most of the detail, it's very, very fuzzy. It's very difficult to describe what it is, but it's just, it's not immediate, it's just dull, you know. It doesn't get the details. Um, some things are just fuzzy you know it's it's very difficult you have to actually read it and then you would say well why is his account not 
quite the same. Why is it so dull? In his private confession, he actually says, I've, I've done worse than this than enough to hang a thousand men. Like he's almost boasting. It's just very odd. I, it just seems to me like somebody is just going through the motions. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's just my imagination. But I just feel that his confession is somebody who has been told what he's supposed to say and is saying it. And it's, it's supposed to be in open court, and everybody thinks that that means all the parents and everybody was in this court. And I don't think there's any reason to suppose they were. It's a very odd court because it's supposed to be a bishop's court which would be open to the public but it's actually presided over by the number two inquisitor in the country who shouldn't be there and um, inquisition courts were never public so it's just was it an inquisition court was it a bishop's court there's no real indication that there are other people present, other than the people you're told are there, who are the judges and uh, the witnesses. But, uh, the, um, the, the civil court is um, a lot more, I mean, it's shorter. It's just rubber stamping everything. But uh, you are told that the court is crowded. You're told there are people present, but you're not told that with the Inquisition or ecclesiastical court. So, so whether he gave that confession in public Nobody knows, and obviously all the um, all the documents are compromised because they have been altered over the years. So basically, everything that had been said about him, he confirmed. Yeah, he just he just effectively says, "Yeah, what they said." It's it's as um, dull as that, right? Which was that he was a participant in these supernatural demonic exchanges. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He had tried to make a pact with the devil. He was kidnapping children, abusing them, torturing them, murdering them. He confessed to it all. Mostly. Right up until the very end, he denies uh, the dealing with demons. I think at the very, very, very end in the um, civil court, I think he does admit to that, but... Uh, that is the thing that he hangs on to, that he did not commit heresy. And part of that was his fear of being excommunicated, right? Yeah, I think, well, it would also, um, heresy was a much worse crime. I mean, you, you would not confess to it unless you really had to. But uh, yeah, he was afraid of being excommunicated because uh, he was a religious man. He was obviously religious his whole life. And uh, a lot of people think that it was just the threat of excommunication that uh, made him confess. I don't think it was. I think, uh, I think torture helped quite a bit. So it's not long after he confesses that he's found guilty, sentenced. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it wasn't a, a, lo- a lengthy trial by the standards of the day. Yeah, he's, he's dead less than a week after the confession. So. And how was he he treated in the days leading up to his execution and including his execution? Was he publicly humiliated just based on the the gruesome, sensational nature of the charges or because he had held such a prominent position and had been a French military hero? was, Was he admired still? And how did his execution play out? 
he's um, given three favours. He is um, the excommunication is rescinded. Uh, he's given a pr procession, right, so that the people can follow him to the gallows. And he is given the what he was think of as a privilege of being the first to be executed because he didn't want his servants to die first, thinking that they might just let him off, right? They want, he wanted them to see him die so they wouldn't feel that they, they were just being punished for his sins, right? And also he was given the right to be buried in Notre Dame de Carmes, which was where the um, heroes and the noblemen of Brittany were buried. Which I mean that that is a huge thing because it means he has to be he's sentenced to be hanged and burned, but he's taken down from the gallows before he can be burned, so he can be uh, laid to rest in uh, this cathedral. But that's not because of his position officially; it's because of his penance, right? Because he has been so penitent, and in fact, the the reason they um, have kept these documents about his trial and execution was as an example of Christian penitence. And subsequently, his daughter has a, a big memorial built near the place of the execution. So he, he didn't have the, I mean, his, his servants are burned to cinders, but uh, he did not have the same treatment as, you know, the common criminals. So the title of your book is The Martyrdom of Gilles de Ray. What makes him a martyr, in your opinion? I think he is actually presented in the court documents as a martyr. Not actually, not, not a saint, obviously, although he was subsequently seen as one, I think, to some people. But uh, they have this whole thing about, um, well, if, if you read the accounts of the crucifixion in the Gospels, and then you read the account of Gilles de Ray's crucifixion is <laughs> hanging all right um the parallels are just quite stunning and they they would be stunning to somebody now but imagine you know in the 15th century as this guy is being led out to be executed between two common criminals you know it's just and i think at the same time of the day as well nine in the morning it's obvious right they would not have done something like that naively they knew what they were doing there. They, either this happened, was made to happen to look like the crucifixion, or it was subsequently altered. Interesting. Now, of these hundreds of children, he had been accused of murdering. W were there remains of, of these children ever recovered? Well, according to the trial record, these bodies were burned to ashes and then just scattered in the moats, which is quite difficult to achieve and there was never one single bone found nothing anywhere ever at any time either at that time or subsequently and every now and then on the internet somebody says oh but they found bones here and they found bones there but they didn't there was no physical evidence the only evidence that was alleged was there were some suspicious ashes, whatever suspicious ashes look like, and a bloody child's smock. But they were not found in any of the castles or, you know, in the vicinity of the castles. They were found in this 
hovel, basically, on the outskirts of Mashkul. And um, there is no reference anywhere to Gilles de Ray going to this particular building. It was a prolati stayed there. But uh, Gilles is not recorded as having gone there. There is no murders supposed to have taken place there, not even any um, magical operations. And, uh, I mean, after all, I mean, they found ash in a, in a hearth. I mean, what do you expect to find in a hearth? I mean, but that that was it. You know, that was the sole sum of all these hundreds of bodies that are supposed to have been disposed of. And that's that's it. Some suspicious-looking ashes nowhere near the castle. So you mentioned earlier that transcripts were altered. Yeah. When were they altered? Why were they altered? How were they altered? Nobody really knows. The place where the original document is supposed to be kept will not allow anybody to look at it and has, hasn't allowed them for some time. Basically, I think for about 30 years, they have not allowed these documents to be looked at. Uh, I have read somewhere that that is, is not even, they are not even the original documents and that those were destroyed and these are a copy. There are actually four copies of the trial, but... Um, the one at Nantes is supposed to be the original, but um, there is a lot of feeling nowadays that the, the, it's not even that. Even the people who think he was guilty say that these documents are compromised. It says in the actual document itself that they, the right is reserved to change these documents late, at a later date. I mean, it's as, as blatant as that, you know, if we want to change these documents, we will. I don't think you can trust anything that you read in the trial record, really. It's a very, very odd. I mean, think details change from one court to the other. The details given in the uh, civil court are very different from the ones in the ecclesiastical court. It's just, and there are these odd little, I don't know what you would call them, really. They're like headings. Obviously, we're added later because it's, it says that um, that he, he was sacrificing children to the devil, right? There's this, this little tag at the beginning sort of summing up the evidence. And that is the only place really with this where they say that he's sacrificing children to the devil. And I'm pretty certain that that was added at a later date. So it, does, it doesn't gel with the body of the evidence. So could you explain his nickname... Bluebeard. Where did that come from? That, I'm not absolutely certain how it started up, but it started up in the middle of the 19th century. There was a guy called, I think, Richard, who just referred to him as Bluebeard for no particular reason. There was a fake version of the trial by a guy called Paul Lacroix, which everybody who wrote about Gilles de Ray subsequently has either based their accounts on him or on somebody else who did. So he has just absolutely permeated the whole narrative. And he put up this idea that Gilles de Ray has this, you know, hair that's a normal colour and a beard that's blue. He actually writes that that is what he looked like. And he's, he's made this up because nothing in the, you know, the trial is a fake version of the trial and there is no description of Gilles de Ray in the trial record or, or anywhere else. And, uh, so it all came about that um, his Gilles' first biographer, the Abbe Bossard, he took this absolutely literally. In fact, his whole 
thesis because it, he was actually writing a thesis about French literature. He didn't know anything about history or folklore. He was writing about French literature. He took that literally and he took as his, the theme of his thesis that Gilles de Ray was actually the inspiration for Perrault's blue, Bluebeard. And there's nothing whatsoever to justify that. Absolutely nothing. It's just a, it's a thesis that Bossard had. And the, and the point of a thesis is that you put forward sometimes quite a controversial theory and people come along, you know, the, the, your, examiners as it were they come along and question you about it well Bossard was never really questioned about the topic of his thesis he was criticized for his poor prose style but nobody actually questioned what he was saying and there is no reason to believe that uh, Perrault was inspired by Gilles de Ray there is if he had needed to be inspired by anybody there was um, basically just around the corner in Brittany, there was a guy called Comor who reputedly murdered his wives as they became pregnant. And there were four, I think there were four wives and one who survived. But uh, he would be a much better bet. But I would imagine that even he was influenced, you know, his, the story of Comor is, I think, influenced by these much older narratives of the um, evil husband or fiance. I don't think there ever was a, an original Bluebeard. I think it's just a, a story. Which, I mean, it crops up all over the place. There are various versions. There's a there's an English version which was described as ancient by Shakespeare. So, so there's, there's just nothing. I think people just like this idea that they could, this Bluebeard thing. But if you, if you examine what Gilles de Ray is supposed to have done, I mean, it's there is absolutely nothing in what he was supposed to have done that would make you think, uh, oh, here's somebody who murders his wives. Because um, he only had one wife, and, uh, and she outlived him. So there are modern-day medievalists who believe he did these, these terrible things, that he was the monster everyone says he was. And one of the arguments they make is, how could the people that surrounded him, how could they have created accusations like this out of thin air when there was no precedent the accusations were, were so grotesque so wild it would have been beyond the ability of someone from this time to imagine them mm, i think that's a pretty silly argument really isn't it it's basically saying no smoke without fire but uh... I mean, there were accounts. I mean, there, there is the. There has always been this legend, which is, which died down for a while. And it started to flare up again. That Gilles de Ray read a book about the, the Roman emperors, and he was inspired by that. I mean, there, there are fake quotes about him saying, "I read this book, and then I went straight off and imitated them." And uh, so, I mean. I mean, if you read some of the things that Nero, say, was supposed to have done with children and what, uh, you know, what Caligula did, and, uh, all of which, by the way, is fairly iffy because, I mean, people made things up in those days as well. But, uh, I mean, if you, if you wanted to make up a story about somebody being incredibly, you know, murderous uh, and sexually perverse, you just... Um, 
you just read about these seizures. I mean, it's all, it's all there, you know. I mean, to the point where, the, where people say, well, that's where he got his ideas from. Because that is the thing that nobody can understand. Right, yeah. So there was a trial in France in the early 1990s, right? And he was exonerated in that trial. It didn't have any official standing, but uh, it was a guy called Gilbert Pruto who was a novelist. And um, nobody is really quite clear exactly what happened there or why he was doing this. He said it was because he had a mentor who was... um, who was interested in exonerating Gilles de Ray. But um, nobody knows why Pruto did this. And people say, well, he just did it for the publicity, but he didn't need the publicity. He was a 70-odd-year-old writer. He was very well-known as a writer. He didn't need to do that. So why he actually did it, I do not know. Because, uh, But uh, anyway, he got this caught together and we are told now that he didn't invite any medievalists we don't actually know whether he invited any medievalists maybe he did maybe he didn't but it's it has become part of um, you know cut and paste mythology that no myth no medievalists were invited but uh, it was really i mean it was a media event um, pruto was very very good at manipulating the media and he wrote a book, a novel, which is criticised because people say, well, he puts a lot of myths into this thing. He says that Gilderay is born in Mashkul and that his, his mother remarried. And I think to myself, well, yes, he did say all that, but he got all of that from Gilderay's uh, official biographer, Bossard. So you really can't say uh, that Bruto uh, is inaccurate without actually saying, yes, but Bossard was inaccurate as well. So he's quite a cunning little chap. I mean, I love Pruto. I absolutely love the guy, but uh, he was very naughty. He did make things up. I know he made things up, but uh, I have read historians on Gilles de Ray, and I can tell you that uh, they are not all that. They There was one called Jacques here who was, um, I think he was writing in the 90s, he was trying to debunk Pruto, but he was actually believing all kinds of myths. He was quoting from um, the guy who wrote the fake trial version. He was quoting from that as if it was genuine. And he's supposed to be a historian. There have been very few historians who have actually written about Gilles de Ray, and pretty much every single one of them has fallen for one myth or another. And I don't, I don't get the impression that the historians have actually done their job. I think somebody needs to actually go in there, get those documents, examine them thoroughly and study them and do a proper biography instead of just reading somebody else's biography and saying exactly what they said. I mean, I was just, I am not very good at Latin. I did Latin at school. I was horrible at Latin. But I had the transcript of the Latin trial, which is um, redacted because, there, as far as I know, there is not a copy. There is not a transcription of the Latin that hasn't been had all the um, the rude bits cut out of it. But I read through that, and straight away, the first thing I noticed was that there is a guy who gives evidence called Dowsey, and he 
is actually goes by two different, well, possibly three different names. And the other one is Sauce, right, which is spelt with an S. It looks like a totally different name, but it's not because you can tell by reading it that this is the same person. And everybody has assumed that these are two separate people. They are, in fact, one and the same person. And Dowsey is saying he had lost a page that Gilles de Ray must have murdered and this, that and the other. And the other one, Sauce, is actually employed by the Duke of Brittany to go into Gilles de Ray's castle and persuade him to enter into a financial transaction with the Duke, right? So these are the same people. We've got a link between rumours about Gilles de Ray murdering children and somebody who was being paid by the Duke of Brittany. And nobody noticed that. None of these historians picked up on it. And I don't think that's because um, they were too dim to notice. I think that's simply because they didn't read the uh, records either attentively or at all. I mean, I should be picking things up like that. I should be, you know, believing them, but I, they have not noticed that. So for people who want to learn more about you, get your book, where should we direct them? What do you recommend? Um, well, if they just... I have a blog called Gilles de Ray Was Innocent. I have um, a Twitter account by the same name. But, I mean, really, if you just if you Google my name, then uh, then it will come up. The book is available on Amazon. so But there, there are links to it all over the place. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for chatting with me about this. It's been fun, hasn't it? Again, I have been speaking to Margot K. Juby. She is the author of The Martyrdom of Gilles DeRay. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.